We're going to uh, continue in our study of Luke this morning, and we're going to uh, continue to see what it is that the Lord wants to say to us. And we're going to look at a passage in the Bible that is completely unique to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is an amazing Gospel. It gives us a lot of information that is covered in other Gospels. But in the particular instance of this passage that we're going to look at today, Luke is unique in recording one of the stories of the childhood of Jesus. And so we're going to read from Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. Let's read it together. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among the relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When, he was, uh, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So here we have this remarkable story. And my plan this morning is to just do a very simple verse-by-verse verse exposition. We'll just look at each of the verses, see what it is that God is saying in this passage, and then at the end, I want to ask one very direct and very simple question. So let's look at verse 41 and lead on from there. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. So the, the idea that was current at the time of Jesus was that if you were a devout religious Jew, your, your focus was, of course, Jerusalem. And within Jerusalem, your focus was the temple, the house of God, the place where God's presence was resident. And so it would be that in the great festivals, there were six or seven of them a year, many people from around the nation and around the world would gather to Jerusalem. The three greatest festivals in terms of the numbers of people who gathered were the Passover, the Atonement, and the Feasts of Tabernacles. But if you were to choose only one, and if you could only get there perhaps once in your life because you were part of the Jewish diaspora spread throughout the world, then the feast that you would most certainly attempt to make was the feast of the Passover. The, the festival that, that caused the, the children of Israel to remember 
their very roots and how they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt and brought into the wilderness where God provided for them with bread from heaven and their journey from Egypt through the wilderness for 40 years into the promised land. That, that story was so foundational to the identity of every living Jew that they wanted to be there. And so it was that Jesus was there. And he was there with a great crowd of people. Each person within Israel would try to get there each year, but if you were part of the diaspora in the Persian Empire to the east, you would try to get there. If you were part of the diaspora to the west in the Roman Empire, you would try to get there. And so a city of perhaps maybe somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 people would swell to half a million people during the feast of the Passover. Just think of it, people sleeping on every street corner, gathered to the Temple Mount as quickly as they could because you could, you could sleep there if you found a place to rest. The whole town would be alive with people. And here, Jesus is taken there too. Verse 42, when he was 12 years old, he went up to the feast according to the custom. Perhaps small children would not be able to go. They would be left at home with relatives. Others, of course, who didn't have relatives at home or who had relatives who were going to go on the journey with them would take the children along. But the fact that Jesus is 12 years old is very important because this is the age when a child in Israel makes the journey from being a child into the adult world. Bar Mitzvah, which many of us are familiar with in the Jewish community to this day, was not a, a, a festival or, a, or an expression of faith that was, that was evident at the time of Jesus, but there was this transition when a child left the synagogue school where they would have been instructed in the Old Testament scriptures. And if they were particularly advanced for their years, if they were, if they were prodigious in their intelligence and their abilities, they would have by the time of 12 perhaps committed the entire book of Psalms to their memory. Maybe already they had committed large portions of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The idea, of course, was that for a devout Jew, they would memorize huge portions of the Old Testament scriptures. And by the time a child was 12, they were expected to have memorized a lot of it already. Those who were the ones who were advancing, who perhaps maybe taken on by a rabbi and instructed in their teenage years, somebody like the Apostle Paul, for instance, would be those who had committed those scriptures to memory already. But for the average child in the average household, the days of the synagogue school would be drawing to a close when they got to the age of 12. Unlike most of the nations of the world, the Jewish nation was a literate nation. They were people who could read and write. But at the age of 12, the children would be handed over to their parents and their parents would instruct them in their future life. 
And so Jesus would soon be taken into the shop to be trained by his father in the family business. So this was a really important moment for Jesus. And that moment manifests itself in a particular way, as we'll see a little bit later on. Verse 43. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. How on earth could that happen, you think? I mean, how is it, how is it possible? Well, there is a very simple explanation. The journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Nazareth would take about three days of fairly concerted walking. And if the men left at the same time as the women and children, they would often overreach them. And so the way that it was done in the time of Jesus and according to the histories of the time is that the women and the children would be sent off first. Their pace would be slower than the men and they would be able to set a reasonable pace and when they reached the point in the journey where they needed to camp either because night was falling or they were completely exhausted, they would wait and the men by then would have caught them up so that as they catch them up, they'll be able to make camp for them and protect them. So the idea is that the children are with the women and the men are with the men. But which one is Jesus? He's in that transition, in that stage, you see. He's, he's there back at the temple, but of course the men, they're looking around, they're saying, well, where's Jesus? And, and they say, well, he's, he's obviously just spending a little bit more time with his mother because he knows that he's gonna have to spend all of his time with those men from now on and so he's hanging out with his friends and, and with his mother and it's his last time to do that so that's fine. His mother on the other hand says well you know he's, he's a bright boy and obviously he wants to stretch his wings and be amongst the men. And so they get to the campsite that night no Jesus. Now it's not just the Africans who have the wisdom to understand that it takes a village to raise a child. It's all of the ancient world. And so it would be thoroughly within the, within the expectations of Mary and Joseph that Jesus might be with other members of the extended family. And so they move around the camp and they ask their relatives and, have you seen Jesus? No. Well now, night has fallen. You can't travel on any roads at night. There are no street lamps. There are no, there are no means of being able to travel at night in any part of the ancient world. And so they have to sleep, I'm sure, a fairly fitful sleep through the night and then set off a full day's journey back to Jerusalem. That's why it takes three days to find him. They've had two days of traveling and two days of worrying. And Jesus is back in the temple courts. Verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, it's important that we understand what's going on here. This is not Jesus 
somehow functioning as a teacher of adults. This is not Jesus who is so prodigious in his abilities and intelligence that that, uh, the teachers of Israel are sitting around at his feet at the age of 12. No, what's being described here is the rabbinic teaching method. Or uh, if you lived in Greece, the, the teaching method would be called the Socratic method. And the method is simply this. The teacher makes a few statements and then asks the students questions. And it's on the basis of the way that they answer that the, that the teacher, the rabbi, is able to understand the progress of his students. And then the students are invited to ask questions of the teacher. And a scribe is present writing down what it is that the rabbi is saying, the questions that he's asking, and on the odd occasion, writing down what the students are saying and asking. And it's called a midrash. That's not a a red patch near your belly button. It's it's a gathering of sayings. It's It's a gathering of teachings. It's a stitching together of thought and it's a, an ancient form of commentary. So, so the commentaries on the Old Testament books were called midrash, and they were developed in this rabbinic fashion. And so Jesus is there with all of the other folks, functioning as an adult, listening to what the rabbis say, answering their questions, and then offering questions himself. And he, he has overreached his years in an enormous sense. I mean, Mary and Joseph are looking at him thinking, this is impossible. I mean, we know that he's smart, but wow, we had no idea. Verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. She sees what it is that he's doing, but of course, her frustration comes out in what it is that she first says to Jesus. I'm sure she thought about it later and thought, maybe I should have told him I was relieved to find him. But um, but this is... This is the very nature, is it not, of parenting. It's not really the the central theme of this passage, but it's something that's worth noting. Jesus is here emerging into an understanding of who he is. He's emerging into the teenage years when hormones will run riot. He's leaving behind his childhood. As a child, even as a teenager, you can expect him to be irresponsible because he doesn't know what it is that he's supposed to be responsible about. Sally and I have often reflected on this as young parents when we, when we were seeking to raise our children in the way that would most honor the Lord. And we thought about this and we even looked at this passage together and realized that, that Mary and Joseph didn't discipline Jesus for being a child. The things that you discipline a child for are things like 
disobedience or deceit. Obviously, not doing what they're told or, or lying in some fashion. Of course, being a preacher, it all had to start with the same letter, so you discipline children for disobedience or deceit, and then everybody can remember it, and it's fine. But you don't discipline children for irresponsibility. And it's quite interesting that that's the case even here. This is not Jesus being disciplined. It's Mary expressing something that is a reflection of her her own anxiety and the anxiety of his adopted father, Joseph. Verse 49, why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Why were you searching for me? There was no point in searching because there was only one place I could be. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this this verse here, uh, I had to be in my father's house, in the older version, if anybody's got the King James Version, it may well be rendered, I had to be about my father's business. Has anybody got that one in there? Yeah. So so there's there's a bit of a complexity here with this verse because there's no noun or verb that explains what it is that Jesus was doing. It just refers to Jesus expressing that he was was about his father's dot, dot, dot. So what is it that's that's being attempted to, to be conveyed here? What is it that Luke is recording as he's had access to eyewitnesses? He's no doubt had access to Mary and has heard these stories from her own lips. What is it that that Jesus is conveying? And what is it this this kind of slang, idiomatic kind of speech is is seeking to convey that, that Jesus is trying to communicate? It's something like this. Why were you searching for me? I had to be in my father's stuff. I had to be... if you want to put it in slightly more delicate English, I had to be in the things that concern my father. My father has concerns, and those concerns are mine, because he's my father. Now, I don't know whether any of you can remember as little children going to work with your dad. Has anybody anybody ever did that? Yeah? It's it's an amazing memory for me, to be honest with you. I was five years old, my dad, you know, he's this great guy. I really enjoyed hanging out with him. We used to watch wrestling on a Saturday afternoon and he'd sit on the couch and he'd break wind and watch the wrestling. And, and I just thought he was a cool dude. And then he said to me, now your mother, she's got something to do tomorrow, so you're gonna come to work with me. And I thought, great. Well, the next morning, my dad's dressed in his army uniform and a car pulls up outside and the driver's there in this fantastic military vehicle and they open the door for him and he gets in and I get into and I'm thinking, wow, this is a whole nother, I don't know what this is. I'm just this five-year-old kid wondering what's going on. And then we, then we drive off towards the barracks and the, the gates open for him and people salute as he, as he is driven in and I'm thinking, hey, <laughs> 
And then we get out of the car and we go into the building and people stand up when he comes into the room and they speak to him with honour and deference. And I'm thinking, he watches wrestling on the couch with me. I don't think you know who he is. Here we have a very clear reference to something that is enormously important about the way that Jesus understood himself. He understood, as he says later in the Gospel of John, in in John chapter five, verse 17 and following, he, he says, his father is always at work and he has to join him there. His father has work and he has to join him there. And here, Jesus is, if you like, encountering the work of the Father for the first time. And it's a wonderful thing for him. And it's a mysterious thing to those who watch him. It says in verse 50, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. It wouldn't be possible for an ordinary human being to really fully plumb the depths of the mystery of revelation that's taking place as Jesus is there in the temple. But Mary treasures these things in her heart. The people to whom this gospel was first addressed, perhaps the Roman court, who were going to try Paul with the accusations of the religious elites in Jerusalem baying for his blood. Perhaps Theophilus, as we suggested a few weeks ago, who is addressed in the first few verses of this this gospel, was a member of that royal court. The people who read these words for the first time would be shocked at the significance and the role of women in the first part of this gospel. They would be amazed that it would be of any interest to anyone what was going on inside the head of a woman. She treasured all these things in her heart. So what, the average Roman would say. But already in the gospel, we have a readjustment to the worldview. The worldview that says there are some who are more equal than others. The gospel is already beginning to adjust the way in which the readers should think because all are equal in the eyes of God. Verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. How do you grow as a Christian? How do you you grow as a person? How can you develop your spiritual life? By imitating the life of Jesus. And the life of Jesus is defined by these three things. Insight, influence, and in favor. I couldn't think of a third word that started with I, but I took in favor anyway. Insight. Jesus grew in wisdom. What is wisdom? 
Well, the beginning of wisdom, the Old Testament scriptures tell us, and Jesus would have been able to tell us at the age of 12 that this was the case. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But what is the fear of the Lord? What do we, what do we understand the fear of the Lord to be? Are we to be frightened of God? Well, of course, God is awesome and powerful and, and certainly not tame. And no one would treat him with, without respect. But Jesus, in his very first sermon, or if not his first sermon, the great sermon that is recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, that great sermon concludes with an explanation of what it means to be a wise person. You see, the highest aspiration in the heart of every Jewish person was that they would be considered wise. Every person, their highest calling, their highest ideal, their highest aspiration was that they would be wise. And Jesus says, that's a good thing to aspire to. And my disciples, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing the disciples. My disciples are wise people. And they're wise because they do the thing that the wise man does. At the end of the sermon, he gives a parable about two ways of living. You can build your life on the sand or you can build your life on the rock. If you build your life on the rock, you're a wise person. If you build your life on the sand, you're a foolish person because when the storms come, your house falls down. And what is it that differentiates the fool from the sage? What is it that differentiates the foolish man from the wise man? The foolish man hears the words of Jesus but does not put them into practice. And so they build their life on sand. The wise man hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. And so here is Jesus redefining the fear of the Lord for us. What does the fear of the Lord look like? It looks like this. Spending a life committed to hearing what it is that God is saying and putting it into practice. And so how do you grow in insight? How do you, how do you grow in the capacity to see things and understand them and then be able to act appropriately by growing in wisdom? How do you grow in wisdom? By hearing the word of the Lord and putting it into practice. So insight is a way that Jesus grew and the way that we can grow. And of course, with insight and growing insight comes growing influence because people want to know your insights. And so you grow in stature. You grow in the influence that you're, that you're able to have in the lives of others because everybody wants people with insight. And so insight naturally leads to influence. And what does in favor with God and men. What would it be like for you and me to grow in favor with God and men? The word favor there is the word that's usually translated grace. 
It doesn't quite kind of flow in English if you just said grows in grace with God and men. It doesn't, people don't quite understand what that means. And so, and so they translate it as favor, but it's the same word. It's the word charis. And so what, what's happening in the life of Jesus is this. He's growing in insight. He's hearing the word of the Lord. He's putting it into practice, of course. He's growing in influence because people can see that in his life. And what that means, what that conveys, what that, what, that, what that leads us to understand about Jesus and would lead us to understand about anybody is that they are the recipient of God's gift. And not only the recipient of God's gift, the conveyor of God's gift also. We grow in grace because we realize that all that we have comes from God himself. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is God's grace to us. They're words that Jesus uses at the very beginning of his ministry. We'll look at it in a few weeks' time. As we grow in insight, we will grow in influence, but we'll also grow in our understanding of what it is that God gives us and what it is that as God gives us, we can share with others. So, there's a few expository thoughts on this marvelous little passage, a real gem in the crown. But what question was I going to ask you? Well, here's the question that occurs to me this morning as I read this text. Do you think that Jesus could ever really be lost. Now, I didn't ask, could Mary and Joseph lose Jesus? That's a whole nother question, because clearly they did. But could Jesus ever really be lost? And when we look at what it is that he says to his mother, it seems quite clear that it's impossible for Jesus to be lost. Because if you know who you are, you know to whom you belong. And if you know to whom you belong, then you know where home is. And so therefore, the destination of your life is already set. If you know the destination, then all you have to do is to set your course on that destination from where you are right now. And the only question is this, to what degree will you go with determination to your destination? So let me just Unscramble that again so that we all get it. Jesus has come to the point in his life where he is absolutely clear about his identity. It's a marvel to us, I know, it's a, a deep mystery of the gospel that the Son of God should so empty himself, using the words of Paul in Philippians chapter two where he says, 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself. The self-emptying of the Son of God to become an embryo, to become a child born of Mary, to be a toddler, an infant, to be a child, and to go through the normal growth and maturation process of any human being is mind-bogglingly amazing. But at the point when Jesus is coming to a sense of his own identity, it's absolutely clear to him that his identity is as the Son of God. You see, Jesus can't be lost because he knows to whom he belongs. And because he knows to whom he belongs, he knows where he's supposed to go. Because the one to whom he belongs is the one who defines where home is. And so that's the destination. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12.2 that we should fix our eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him was prepared with determination to go through the agonies of the cross. Right here is when Jesus was being formed in that understanding. Jesus always knew where home was and he was prepared to go through anything to gain that destination. So what about you or I? Do you find yourself struggling to know what to do ever? Are you thinking about a job opportunity? Are you thinking about whether you should ask that person to marry you? Are you, are you considering large or small questions in your life? What's going on in your life right now? Whatever it is that's going on in your life, you can approach it in one of several ways, but the two main ways are people line out pros and cons, and it's, it's a good thing, line out pros and cons, and then they try to come to a kind of reasoned decision. And that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're wrestling, if you're struggling to know what to do next, then, then press the reset button. And the reset button is this. If you know who you are, you will know what to do. Because doing comes from being. If you know who you are, you know to whom you belong. If you know to whom you belong, then you know where home is. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and all these other things in your life will take care of themselves. You know where home is. You know where the destination of your life is. If you know the destination of your life, then the only issue for you is to what degree will you be determined 
in following the journey to that destination. Do you see what I mean? It's identity that is the key. And what if you're here today and you don't know your identity because you don't know that you're a child of God? Well, then today, then today, hear the invitation, the beckoning voice of Jesus saying, I can reveal to you today that you're not only the child of God, but that you're the loved, you're the beloved child of God who I came for, who I died for, who I rose for, and who I'm ready to bless and fill and equip and send on my behalf. If you're wrestling today with any of the circumstances, large or small, that I've described, then my encouragement to you, and I believe the counsel of the scriptures would be this. Press the reset button. Don't try to work out whether you should do this or that. First of all, go back and say, now who am I? To whom do I belong? Where is my home? Where's the destination of my life? And how can I, with every effort, with every determination, how can I set my course on that destination? Does that make sense to everybody? That's why Jesus could never be lost. That's why you and I need never be lost. And if you're lost today, either fundamentally lost because you don't know you're a child of God or temporarily lost because you've lost sight of your identity as a child of God, then today's a day when you can press that reset button. As we invite the band to come forward, I'd like you to consider this. We did this in the first service and I'd encourage you to consider this here in the second service. If this word for you today has been a word that you know applies to the particular circumstances of your life, then don't go without responding to God. Now, I know that the norm in all of our lives is that we respond to God somehow in our head and in, in our internal life. And I've said to you on many occasions, in that case, you wonder why God gave us a body at all. Of course, we're fully integrated people and it's with our bodies that we best communicate. And so as God is communicating to you, my encouragement is that you communicate with him. And one of the best ways of doing that is making a move towards him and saying, Lord, I need that reset button today. And what will it be like when you press that reset button and say, Lord, just remind me again. You'll hear these words. You're my son. You're my daughter. 
you're my child. I love you and I'm proud of you. How do I know that? Because those are the words that the Father spoke over Jesus in his baptism and on the mountain of transfiguration. These words will ring in our hearts, whether we've ever heard them before or whether we've heard them many times. And that will be a fresh start, a fresh moment. It may be the first moment that you know where home is. Because home is the place where we belong and it's defined by the person to whom we belong. So in the singing of the worship, as we raise up a kind of protective, safe space in our worship, I'd encourage you to come and come with those things in mind. And then perhaps there are those of you who've been struck by these testimonies of healing that are taking place within the church. We're hearing about them every day now. Maybe there's something that's burdening you in your life or in the life of your family or your work colleagues where you're looking for healing. Then come and the prayer team will pray with you.